0: Well, I would invite you to grab your copy of God's Word at this time and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 11 together this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I would imagine from time to time you grab some old family photos or perhaps old yearbooks or something like that. And when you look at those old photos uh, by yourself or with your friends or whoever's there with you, I'd imagine that it becomes quite apparent to all that are looking at those that there was a time when you really, really had it going on. Uh, Some of you had some amazing hairstyles. Um, Others of you, you had amazing glasses. I mean, there was the era of the huge, massive glasses with the thick rims, and and then all of a sudden what was cool was the real narrow, thin ones. And others of you, your makeup styles have changed over the years, and uh, also what we wear on our feet, our shoes, whether those be big old boots of some kind or something else, and... I'd imagine some of you also had some amazing sweaters that you may still have tucked away in your closet somewhere or in a drawer. Um, Clothing patterns have also changed. I mean, there was the era of uh, floral patterns and I don't know, these things come and go, I suppose. And if you look back at that time, you maybe also think of what music you were listening to with your friends and the amazing cutting-edge technology that you were listening to it on at the time. You were cool. You're looking back now. It's probably just best seeing some of those old pictures, that some of those styles and fashions, they just stay back there in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, where they belong. Because some of the things from the past just need to stay in the past. And that's the argument that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 regarding how we live our lives. There are some ways of living, Paul says, that frankly, they just belong in the past. To an old era of life. An era of life before we trusted Christ. Before the Holy Spirit came and took up residence within us. And that's exactly where those old ways of living and thinking and attitudes and mentalities belong. In the past. That's where they should stay. Because the old life and the new new life, they don't mix. They don't go together. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to Paul challenges the Corinthians because they are doing things that they don't line up with their new identity in Christ. They don't line up with their new life, their new status as Christians. What's happened is the old way of life has made its way, it's crept its way back into their life, into the present. And that was evidenced in Corinth by the fact that uh, this church, as we saw in chapter 5, had sexual immorality in their midst. And then uh, last week we saw in chapter 6 that these believers were taking each other to court and they had lawsuits against each other. Once God saves you, the Bible teaches, you're a new person. The old has passed away. The new has come. And the old life and the new life, they just don't mix. So God expects you and he will help you to live as you really are, a new person, a righteous citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this text is about. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. to Follow along as I read this passage. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Paul seems to be putting some facts out on the ta- uh, on the table before the Corinthians. He's going to lay out three, I think, in this text. And the intent of, of these facts is to correct the Corinthians. They seem to be in error. And so the first fact, he, the fact that he puts on the table before him is this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you look at verse 9, that's the exact language that he uses. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I think at that point, at this point, it's worth us asking at least a few questions. First, what is this kingdom of God that he speaks of? You may recall that in Matthew's gospel, he referred not to the kingdom of God. uh, He used different language to refer to this concept. He called it the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom is a kingdom that already exists. You can be part of it here and now, today. And yet at the same time, this kingdom is yet to be fully realized. It's a a kingdom that has a king, and we know this king. His name is Jesus, and it also has a citizenry, a people, the king's people, Christians. And it also has a law, the king's perfect law, God's word. And what does it mean then to inherit this kingdom? Well, inherit here seems to mean to to enter into full possession of something. You can be part of this kingdom uh, now. A person can be, but but this there's this future time coming where a person would enter into full possession of that, and and see Jesus Christ face to face and be like him and spend all of eternity with Christ in the kingdom. So, to inherit the kingdom of heaven is to enter into full possession of eternal life. It's to experience eternal salvation. And I think we need to ask ourselves then, well, then, then who are the unrighteous? Because Paul makes this big statement in verse 9. He says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, we know elsewhere from Scripture that their experience will be quite the opposite. Instead of entering into the, the kingdom, instead of inheriting the kingdom, they will be cast into the fires. Of hell, And what a contrast that is. So what what is it, who is it rather, that doesn't get to enter the kingdom of heaven? And actually the language that God uses in this text, God says, well, I want you to be really clear on this. He says, do you not know? Do not be deceived. And then he's going to give several examples of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. He goes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he gives several examples. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. And that's just a sampling. According to these verses, he begins with the sexually immoral. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. that phrase, sexual immorality, comes from a Greek word, porneia, from which we get some English words you're familiar with, porn and pornography. But the word used here, it is broader than that. It's an umbrella term that refers to all different kinds of sexual immorality that deviate from God's standard. And in God's word, we do read that God has a standard, and his standard is clear. This word, sexual immorality, would include things like prostitution, any kind of uh, premarital sexual activity, pornography, of the other items that he's going to mention on this list, and so much more. Uh, and these things, as you and I know well, they're rampant in our society. And they're not just rampant. They're often not even thought of as wrong. And I could demonstrate that quite easily just with some statistics on pornography of teenagers and 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. Just uh, 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe that porn is even wrong. This, This next thing really fascinates me. Teens and young adults, 13 to 24, believe that not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. And on the Christian front, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say that they watch porn at least once a month. In our society, this is something that many people would go, this isn't even wrong. It's not even a big deal. And and what has God just said? The sexually immoral won't inherit the kingdom of God. And so I would ask you, are you living in some kind of sexual immorality? And again, there's so many forms and varieties to that. Are, Are you practicing sexual immorality? Next on the list is idolaters. Idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. What do you think of when you think of idolatry? Well, what what I would maybe think of right away is I would would take myself in my mind to probably some animistic culture where they've got carved images or they've got metal images or stone images that people are literally bowing down and worshiping. But that's a very, very narrow view of idolatry. Broadly speaking, idolatry, we might say it's any misappropriation of our worship. It's when we place anything on God's throne instead of Him. God has a throne and He's the only one that belongs there. And we could put something else on that throne or we could elevate something else above that throne and people do that all the time. In summary, what what gets put in God's place? Well, we have a tendency to put ourselves there and to worship ourselves and make our life all about ourselves. We live for ourselves it's easy to live for your pleasure first and foremost or your personal satisfaction or your hobbies or your pursuits or uh, some car- your career or your aspirations become an idol or your dreams or your relationship uh, with someone. Uh, even, even something good uh, like a, a dating relationship even with another Christian person and this person loves Jesus, you love Jesus and yet this person gets elevated to God's status in your life. That's idolatry. Are you living like an idolater? Third on the list is adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Adultery very simply uh, refers to going outside of your marriage for fulfillment and for satisfaction. doesn't necessarily need much explanation. And yet I would ask you, are you living the life of an adulterer? Are you practicing adultery? Next, he mentions homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Verse 9 uses the phrase, men who practice homosexuality. That's how the ESV translates it. There's actually two words there. Um, The ESV Bible, if you're holding one in front of you, actually has a footnote that takes you to the bottom of the page to this note. The two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners and consensual homosexual partners. Acts. So there's actually two words in this text. The first of the two words basically means softness or effeminate. And often what would happen in the ancient world is that younger men would actually sell themselves to older men, uh, basically to be the effeminate partner in such a relationship. And then you would also have the opposite side of that. And I'll just draw your attention to God's words in this text. He says, do not be deceived. God warns. What may be so accepted in your society, God says it does not exist in the kingdom of God. It's become quite common for people to identify as gay Christians. Uh, And the argument being, you know, you can identify as both simultaneously. At one point I I checked out a book by a proponent of The View. I, I do try often to read things that just keep me... Uh, well-versed on what's being written and arguments that are being made for this, that, or the other. And I picked up this book and I read the first chapter of this several hundred-page book and then I put it down, completely unconvinced. I mean, obviously I hadn't read the whole thing, but why? Because there's no higher authority than the Bible and 400 pages of argument cannot negate even one sentence that's breathed out by God. Those who practice homosexuality, God says, they're not found in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as what we might call a gay Christian, just like there is no such thing as taking any other of the sins on this list and pairing that with the idea of being a Christian and welding those two things together. We don't say, you know what, I'm an adulterous Christian. Or I'm a thieving Christian, I'm a reviling Christian, I'm a drunkard Christian. That's not to say that as a Christian that you would never struggle with any of the sins on this list or that you would never even commit them as a Christian. But those sins, they're they're not defining. True Christians do not gladly identify with their sin. Christians are not proud of their sin. We recognize that we have it and we're struggling and we're fighting it, but we're ashamed of it. And we fight it, to move forward and to pursue Christ. Are you living or practice, living in homosexuality or practicing homosexuality? Next, thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Thieves are those who take what is not theirs and what does not belong to them. They take other people's money and they take other people's belongings. But sometimes thieves take things of a more intangible nature as well. They could take a person's dignity or their purity. Or their virginity. Or something else. But thieves rob others for the good of themselves. And and when you have theft, what you have is pure selfishness. Are you taking what does not belong to you? Next, the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I I find it interesting here on this list. You've got this whole gamut of things. Some sins that maybe we go, oh yeah, that's obviously wrong. And then it gets to words like this that go straight for our heart. And they seem so every day. Greed or covetousness is lust for more. Typically material things. But greed often involves being aggressive aggressive to get something. And in that process you often run over other people. But sometimes though, greed can be quite subtle. As I mentioned, it can be much more of an attitude. um, Attitudinal in, in nature. It may not even be seen. The opposite of greed often involves the cheerful and generous giving away of our money and our resources and and holding our possessions with loose hands and recognizing that whatever God puts into our hands, those things are tools for God's glory. Are you living in greed? And next, he says, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Drunkenness obviously involves being influenced and controlled by a substance. And it leads to harm, pain, and loss. God in Ephesians talks about how he does not want us to be under the control of any substance. He wants us to be under the control of the Spirit of God. Are you living controlled by a substance? Next he mentions revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to revile? Well, that's abusive speech. It's using your words to wrong and to harm other people. It's when you say harsh things degrading things, piercing things that that go into someone like a knife. Proverbs talks about how our words, there's life and death and the power of the tongue and how you, uh, that that a person's words can be like the piercings of a sword. Right into someone's gut. Are you living as a reviler? And finally on his list is the word swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, Similar to theft, swindling though it is, is typically less direct and it often involves deception, you're taking from someone by scheming or by exploiting them to your own advantage. And I think these, this type of thing often happens in the world of business and sales and so many other realms. And it's displeasing to God. Are you living as a swindler? It's important to note, though, that Paul's list, he's given us ten things. His list isn't exhaustive. In fact, it's just a representative sample. It's by no means exhaustive. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And he mentions uh, 15 to 17 different works of the flesh. Things that show up when your own passions and desires control you. And then he says, after mentioning those 15 to 17 works of the flesh, the same phrase found here, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And his list includes items uh, not found in uh, on this list, but other items like anger. And obviously you can have explosive anger, or you could have more internal simmering anger that maybe, again, nobody ever sees. And he also mentions pretty common everyday things like strife and division, conflict between people. And I think we're brought to this reality, there is no one who is righteous. And therefore, no one is worthy of the kingdom of God. Romans 3 verse 10 makes a massive statement. None is righteous. No, not one. Just think about that in light of verse 9. There's nobody righteous. We're all unrighteous. And the unrighteous aren't found in the kingdom of heaven. But obviously, something's happened to the Corinthians. And Paul is highlighting the fact that they seem to be part of this kingdom. And so he tells them, live as you really are, a new righteous citizen of God's kingdom. In verse 9, God says, do not be deceived. And again, he uses the language of no. There's things that you can confidently know. Which means that If he's warning us about not being deceived, it's possible for people to be deceived about their own or even another person's eternal status. And he tells them, don't be deceived. His point is is that one's life and lifestyle provide an important indicator of one's status. Don't be deceived about yourself. This text, it's not written to people who aren't professing Christ as their Savior. This text is written to people who are. It's written to professing believers who are living in an unrighteous way. And in one sense, this text is a warning that you can be a professor of Christ, but not a possessor of Christ. You you can talk to Jesus' talk. You can say that he's your Lord and Savior. You can profess that and yet not possess Christ. And I want to show you something I think that that is quite significant in this text. In verse 8, Paul said that the Corinthians were wronging each other. That's the word that he used, wronging each other. By taking each other to court, they were doing what was wrong in contrast to what we might say is right, or another way we could word it, righteous. Look at verse 8. He said, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. That word wrong in verse 8, as you look up into verse 9, it's the exact same word that's used in verse 9 for unrighteous. And you may even note in your Bible, after unrighteous, you you may have a little note there, um, as I do in my Bible, that offers an alternative way of translating that word legitimately, and it's with wrongdoers. In short, Paul is saying, listen guys, you are wronging each other. And don't you know that wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God? I can only imagine as Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians and it came on whatever parchment or whatever and they they spread this thing out. And and maybe some leader is reading this in in the Corinthian assembly or maybe they're all gathered around reading this letter. I can only imagine as they came to this part of his letter and read these words in verse 9, I would imagine for the Corinthians that it was one of those big (laughs) moments for them. Because it's like Paul is asking a question, something like this, if you are continually practicing some form of wrongdoing, as the Corinthians were, what might that say about you? Particularly if, if you go on doing that and never come under the chastening, corrective hand of God. Could that mean that, that you're not part of the kingdom? Those who make a practice of doing wrong cannot be found. They do not exist in the kingdom of God. Righteous people practice righteousness. So don't be deceived about yourself and, and don't be deceived about others when people don't show evidence of being new. More often than not, that's because they're not new. You might be thinking, oh, okay, um, I think I get it. Maybe not my favorite text but I think I get it. Number one, sinful, dirty people don't go to heaven. And number two, you have to be good or you have to make yourself good to get there. And actually, both of those conclusions are completely wrong because there is no such thing as a good person and that's not how God's kingdom works. And so Paul is going to lay before these people a second fact that's intended to correct them and get them back on course. His first fact was that the... The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And his second fact is, such were some of you. Verse 11 makes clear that what he's mentioning in verses 9 and 10, he's like, well, that's your former status. Those things and things like them, they were a part of your not-so-distant past, but guess what? That's what they were, part of your past. Yes, you were unrighteous. You were probably identified by the very things on this list. You were sexually immoral. Yeah, that was you. And you were an adulterer. And yes, you did go outside of your marriage. And yes, you did practice homosexuality. And and yes, back there in the past, you lived under the control of a substance or perhaps many substances. And do you know what else you did? You took advantage of others for your own ends. And purpose is, you ripped through other people with your words. You were nasty. You lived your life for yourself and your own selfish pursuits. And in short, based on the later wording of this text, we might say, you were dirty. And you were defiled. And you were guilty in God's eyes and in God's court. And consequently, it's not Paul's, it's not that he's just saying that you were unrighteous. He's saying as well, that you were not set to inherit the kingdom of God. On the contrary, you were destined to meet God in his fury and to spend eternity, not in the kingdom of heaven, but in hell. You were not set to inherit the kingdom of God. And that, Paul says, he goes, that was the past. That was your former status, which means that you are you were something that you are not today. Are you the things listed in verses 9 and 10, or is that what you were? It's like he's trying to drive into the Corinthians, listen, your old life, all those things, the way you used to live, who you used to be, all of that does not define your present reality. It doesn't define you. Those sins are no longer defining or identifying Jesus defines you now. The gospel defines you now. You are new. And now, with that being the case, that former way of life does not belong anywhere in the present. And that doesn't mean that temptation won't come. That doesn't mean that you'll you'll never struggle with sin or the things on this list or other lists. But God wants you to press forward, leaving that stuff exactly where it belongs in the past, in the rearview mirror, pressing forward. My kids love to color, as I would imagine many of your children do, and, and you probably did as a kid. It's pretty funny uh, watching particularly young children color. A toddler, perhaps, you hand them a coloring sheet, you hand them a box of crayons, and they grab their crayon like this. Maybe they grab three crayons like this. And it's just everywhere, right? It's a beautiful picture in mom's eyes. And there's just no recognition of the boundaries or the lines. It's just you just color anywhere and everywhere you want. Isn't it awesome? Uh, my kids color often. I've got a metal filing cabinet right next next to my desk with some magnets on it, and they love to put their artwork and their coloring sheets right there on dad's filing cabinet. They're not the finest works of art I've ever seen, and and some of that is just no recognition of the lines. But what happens for most children as they get a little bit older, it totally changes. They start recognizing the lines and they start living there. They start coloring within those lines and end up making some very beautiful coloring sheets. And by elementary school, most of those kids, they would even laugh at the way that they used to do it. That's not how you do it. You know, you used to live in such a way that you colored anywhere and everywhere you wanted to, ignoring the lines, often not even seeing it. This is just what I do. That was the old way, and you're new now. And when you live within the lines that God sets, what what actually results is a beautiful picture that's pleasing and honoring to God and satisfying for you, even at times when it's hard. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and so Paul says, live as you really are, a righteous citizen of God's kingdom. The unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Live as you really are, someone who is not who they used to be. I would encourage you, don't forget what God saved you out of and what God saved you from. For some of you, God very much saved you out of um, the the types of things that we read on this list. For others of you, maybe you go, not so many of those things are on my list, but maybe God saved you young and early. Praise God for that because many, many of those things would have been there. Don't forget what God saved you out of and what God saved you from. And also don't identify yourself as unrighteous. Identify yourself as a saint. Do you know that's what Paul does with the Corinthians? Not the most godly group of people. And yet in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul calls them saints, holy ones, because that's who they are in Christ. And remember that kingdom people are people who have been changed and they are changing. We keep fighting our sin. We keep trying to grow and pursue Jesus. Question, what removes a person from the ranks of the unrighteous who will not enter the kingdom of God? As I already mentioned, it it might sound like, well, you know, good people go to heaven, right? Or that you got to make yourself good. You can't be dirty. But you would be mistaken if that's what you walked away from from this text because actually what we find is that it it is dirty people, (laughs) Who end up in heaven. And that's Paul's third fact. Which can be summarized with one word. And it's the word but. Fact number one. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fact number two. Such were some of you. Fact number three. But. But God intervened on your behalf. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And actually, in the original language, he keeps repeating the word but. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God did something extraordinary for you. He changed your status. And according to verse 11, what did that look like? Well, we read there that God washed you. You didn't wash yourself. You didn't clean yourself up. I think what happens for a lot of people, they start to realize, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of dirty. I'm kind of defiled, and I my life isn't very pleasing to God. and What I need to do is I just need to start fixing that and then go to God, and maybe he'll accept me. That's not what this text says. You didn't wash yourself up. You didn't clean yourself up and then walk to God, and he was like, hey, you're better now. You can be my friend, and you can go to heaven. no. You were dirty and you were defiled. And God came to you and he washed you from the filth of your sin and from the filth of your lifestyle. And what is it that he washed you with? His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. He sent his son Jesus Christ to earth to pay the price for your sins on the cross. I bought my first car. It was a 1987 Buick LeSabre. I purchased it from a 93-year-old lady. I can't remember if she was still alive or if she had just died uh, there's just one problem with this car that I love so much. The interior smelled awful. I don't know. Maybe she died in the car. I don't know what happened, but it smelled super, super bad. And I tried everything that I could get do to get rid of this smell. I mean, I tried air fresheners. I tried leaving the windows open all night. I mean, I just, anything and everything I could think of, I tried it. I, I think I uh, cleaned the seats, the upholstery, everything. I could not get the smell out. Well, at that time, I worked for my stepdad at a fire and water restoration company where we were literally in the business of removing stains and smells. We couldn't figure out how to get this one out. Just whatever we tried, nothing worked. And one day, my stepfather suggested to me that I take an ozone machine home from work. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is, but basically this machine, I could plug it in and roll up the windows, leave it in the car, leave it in there for several hours, and hopefully it would take that smell out. So I did. I think I left it in the back of my car for 24 to 48 hours running and it worked. And it was the only thing that would. Nothing else would work. You can try whatever you want to try. To try to wash the stains of your sins away. I mean, you can try anything and everything you want. You can start trying to be moral. You can start trying to do this. You can start giving your money. You can can try so many things to wash the stains and the smells of your sin away. And you will never do it. Because there's only one thing that can actually get it done. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And Titus chapter 3 mentions this thing called the washing of regeneration. Or the washing of of rebirth or of of the new birth. There was a point in time, if you're a Christian, when God caused you to be born again. And at at that point, God working in your heart, he brought you to the point where you saw your sin and you repented of that sin. You confess it to God and you put your trust in Christ and his work on the cross and all of his perfections. And at that point, God washed you and he cleansed you from your sins. All the dirt, all the defilement, all the stench, all the smell, God washed you, and not just that, God consecrated you for His own use. Verse eleven continues: "Such were some of you, but you were washed, and then, but you were sanctified." That word means very simply to set set apart. In other words, you were set apart, or you were consecrated for divine usage. You were set apart to service to God's service. You were consecrated for the master's use. You were set apart to be a tool in God's hand for his glory and for his pleasure. You've got a new purpose in life now. And finally, God declared you righteous. Verse 11 continues, but you were justified. Uh, A theological term, it's a legal term from the courts that means to declare righteous. You were declared righteous in God's sight which means that you were completely acquitted. Again, you, the person who was unrighteous and dirty and defiled, and yet God has looked at you and he has declared you, he has pronounced you righteous. Why? Because you cleaned yourself up and did a bunch of good things and started acting righteously? No. Because God sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and he lived perfectly, and he lived righteously, and he never sinned, and he died on the cross in your place, sacrificing his life to satisfy God's wrath for your sin as your substitute. He lived and died as your substitute so an exchange could happen. He could take all your unrighteousness on himself in exchange, give you all of his righteousness. Jesus lived and died in your place as the righteous one. I want to just highlight for you briefly here that these three things, this um, being washed and being set apart and being declared righteous, those three things, those three facts happened by means of the Trinity, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It says you were washed. In other words, you didn't do this for yourself. Somebody did it for you or to you. Who? God the Father. But as we keep reading this text, we find that how did God the Father do his work? Through the Son and through the Spirit. These three facts happened by means of Jesus Christ and his work, and then they were applied to you by the Holy Spirit of God. God the Father effected your salvation through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do I bring that up? Because all three persons of the Trinity uh, were a part of your salvation and all three parts of, of the Trinity are a part of your ongoing walk. The Holy Spirit is there to help you and guide you living within you to help you live this new life. And Christ's work is there and it's complete and it's done. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Live as you really are, a righteous citizen of God's kingdom, in whom the Spirit of God dwells. A few reminders from this text. Unrighteousness need not be a permanent condition. and That's what we see happening in this text. We're all unrighteous. None of us are belong in the kingdom of God. And then we read words like, such were some of you. But unrighteousness need not be a permanent condition. When people turn to Christ, they are cleansed. Who does God cleanse? Who does God sanctify? Who does God justify? He does that for people who ask for it. What type of people does God save? What type of people inherit the kingdom of God? Clean people? No. Very, very dirty people. God saves dirty, unholy, guilty people. And also, this text does not say, but you did something. It says, but God did something. Salvation is not by works. And another simple reminder, we call erring brothers back to the path of righteousness with the gospel. That's the example that we see in this text. The same thing that brought us to the path of righteousness in the first place is the same thing that draws us back to it. Paul, I mean, obviously his brothers and sisters in Corinth, they've got some big issues. They've got some major sin in their lives and no doubt Paul is very disappointed in them on the human level. Why are they living like this? They shouldn't be living like this. And He doesn't just slap them in the face and be like, get your act together, you big bunch of wicked sinners. I mean, he's obviously shooting straight with them. He's obviously calling them out on their sin. But what is it that Paul summons his friends back to a righteous life with? You just need to be immoral. You just need to get your act together. You just need to stop, 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 stop. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, guys, (laughs) the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God. And here's what unrighteousness looks like, and that was you. Until God stepped in and he intervened and he washed you and he cleansed you and he, 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 he set you apart and he justified you. And he, he summons them back to the path with the gospel itself and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I think it, it's pretty obvious why that's the answer. A true child of God, really, even if they become somewhat hardened, it's hard to get over the gospel. When Paul starts laying out the gospel again, how, if you're a true child of God, can that not touch your emotions and your heart and your will? It's like a bullet that pierces wondering Christians right between the eyes. It is the answer. Live as you really are, a righteous citizen of God's kingdom. Something happened to you spiritually that should forever change the way that you live practically. I want to close here by reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Paul wrote there to the Colossian believers. He said, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us To the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I hope in your heart you're praising God for that. And I hope by his grace, you'll try to live in a way that reflects your new identity. Would you bow with me at this time?